Welcome back to Known Unknowns Watergate, part four. I'm Hugh Hewitt, the president of the Richard Nixon Foundation, also the host of the Hugh Hewitt Show. And at this time, I'm a contributing editor of the Washington Post and an NBC analyst. Sitting on my right is Jeff Shepard, Esquire, and you can read about him on Jeff Shepard, Esquire, E-S-Q, G-E-O-F-F, Shepard, E-S-Q, on Twitter. He's the author of two books on Watergate. He was on the White House staff from 1970 until the end of the Nixon presidency. He was on the defense team of Watergate, and I've asked Jeff to share just a portion of his vast encyclopedic knowledge about Watergate with us in a series of eight broadcasts, the first three of which you've already hopefully listened to. We pick up, and the plot thickens. A break-in has occurred. It was directed by G. Gordon Liddy, with the knowledge, or not, of John Dean, who's been summoned back from Manila in June of 1972. We pick up there, Jeff Shepard. Did John Dean know before it happened that it was happening? John Dean is willing to sue people who accuse him of knowing in advance of the break-in, but he certainly knew about the campaign intelligence plan. Um, don't know. Just don't know. don't know. Has he ever testified under oath about knowing or not knowing? Oh, yes. John, uh, uh, John was the lead government witness in the cover-up trial. Uh, he was also a sworn witness in the Urban Committee hearings. But as I say, John is a hugely accomplished uh, uh, purveyor of untruths. And, and uh, uh, you, you, you have to be very, very careful to parse his words. All right, so let's go back to what we do know mm -hmm. and leave Mr. Dean's credibility on this point to a side. What happens after Watergate is broken up by the police, the Cubans are arrested, Gordon Liddy meets with John Dean and a cover-up begins, what happens? I mean, when we say a cover-up begins, what's that mean? Well, John, John has testified that there really wasn't a decision to do the cover-up. They just started protecting themselves and it evolved into illegal activities. As I say, on Sunday they put out a press release, on Monday... Well, it, it evolved. It was an illegal activity to break into the DNC. Subsequent illegal activities oh, occurred. Oh, no, there was open and shut illegal activity on the break-in. The question was who knew and how high up within the White House and or the committee to re-elect the knowledge of the plan or the break-in went. That was the fight. Curious for you, <clears throat> the young lawyer in the White House, if someone had told you, what would you have done? I mean, we have the ben benefit of hindsight and we think ourselves moral and perfect characters young men under pressure, major events going on, what do you think you would have done? You know, the only, the only <clears throat> acceptable answer is I don't know. Uh, uh, I was such a Boy Scout, uh, uh, so super straight, nobody asked me. If they had told Haldeman, who was just as Boy Scoutish as anybody else, what would he have done? I think he would have gone to John Ehrlichman, his lawyer, and said, what on earth is this? And Ehrlichman would have said, these people are nuts, and stopped it. Uh, Dean said at one point there was an idea to kill Jack Anderson or break into Brookings or something, and it was Gordon's. And he flew out to San Clemente where Ehrlichman was and said, you wait, wait, stop wait, wait. this. There, there was an idea to, to do violence? Well, yeah, Jack Anderson was a threat to the national security. According to G. Gordon Liddy. Listen, listen, Gordon Liddy, your listeners do not know the man, and he appears to be normal today, ran a very successful radio broadcast for years in Washington. But at the time, 
particularly on topics of opponents to the government, there was no bounds to what he was willing to do. He was a scary guy. I hope he is willing to talk to you because he's never talked to anyone, right? Well, he wrote a book. Uh, he waited seven years. He wrote a book uh, called Will that describes how tough he is and everything he did. And people who've studied this and, and, and looked at it very carefully have say they've never found a factual error in Gordon's book. He cleaned it completely out. But if you read that book, it'll keep you awake at night. But there are questions unanswered about what uh, Gordon knew and didn't know. There's more detail that someone like me, who is really off in the weeds, really wants to know. Uh, I, I, part of my review is John Dean's recruiting and hiring of Gordon and his talks or communications with Gordon after the February 4th meeting. And in Gordon's book, he skips it. And I want to go sit down and talk with him and say, what did John tell you? I mean, you walked away agreeing to do this plan and you thought you got at least a half a million dollars. What kinds of things did you discuss with John Dean? He'd have us believe you were a complete surprise. All right, we, we hope you are successful in that. Let's go back to knowing what we do know. This is okay. known unknowns, but let's do some known knowns for a moment. What, what happens after that meeting with Dean? Well, Dean, Dean uh, uh, reports uh, uh, to Ehrlichman that Liddy's involved in the operation, and then he attends a meeting on Tuesday night with the creep people. Uh, Gordon is, is, is kind of running the shredding machine like there's no tomorrow, shredding all his files back at creep. Uh, but John Dean, uh, John Mitchell, Jeb Magruder, and two of Mitchell's other aides, uh, uh, Fred LaRue and, and Bob Mardian, start discussing what on earth to do. And John says, Gordon has assured me his people are solid. They won't say a word, but we got to cover their expenses. So they're all involved in a cover-up at this point. Well, yeah, but, you know, one of the notes in the special prosecutor's file says, at what point does protecting yourself politically become an obstruction of justice? And some of those people who had no knowledge or weren't involved would tell you that they were, they were called into a meeting and the discussion was, what do we do? And one of the answers was, well, we pay legal expenses. But I want to make, I want to underscore, a cover-up is underway whether or not it is illegal or not. Clearly. Uh, on that day in which there are eight participants talking about what to do and they know that the break-in has been authorized and indeed conducted by G. Gordon Liddy and that the White House counsel knows about it. Yes, all those things are true. So. In this day and age, we would expect at least someone in that room to, to knock over the glasses. My antitrust professor taught me, leave the room, and everyone remembers that you're leaving the room from yeah, the conspiracy, uh, uh, and call the bureau. It's called noisy withdrawal. Noisy withdrawal. It's the SEC's when you, when you resign over an ethical question, you can't just leave. There must be a noisy withdrawal. Yeah, so yes, but that you did would not have expected. happen. No, no, no way in the world. One guy, one guy, Hugh Sloan, treasurer of creep. They came to say, you know, Gordon ended up with uh, $90,000 and we got to figure out a good excuse for what he was doing with that money. And he said, not me, I'm out of here. Did he go to jail? Oh, Lord, no. He wasn't even, uh, wasn't even indicted. Uh, Hugh, he was a stand-up guy. So well, he, he refused Hugh. to go along. Hugh's deputy, poor guy named Bart Porter, uh, Magruder calls him in and says, we're looking for people, we, the president is looking for people we can trust. 
and you've been identified as someone who could play a critical role on behalf of the president. We have $90,000 that we haven't accounted for. Why don't you just make up how you think it might have been spent by Gordon Liddy? And they say, well, maybe he was hiring security for the surrogate program. Maybe that costs money. And then they said, well, now, Bart, why don't you go down to the grand jury and testify that's what happened? Okay, we're ahead of ourselves. Absolutely. We, we, we should all aspire to be Hugh Sloan, is what you're saying. Absolutely. But in that meeting, there are eight people, and there isn't Hugh Sloan in that meeting. Uh, without question. Chuck without Colson question. once told me when I interviewed him for PBS in Searching Forgotten America that a conspiracy in Washington, D.C. is simply impossible. It cannot last longer than three days. People will talk. Well, How soon did someone talk about this meeting? Oh, not till the cover-up collapsed. The cover-up collapsed uh, uh, pretty much on May, 20, May 23rd, 1973, <clears throat> when the uh, Watergate burglars had been convicted and were looking at sentencing and in, in anticipation of the sentencing by Judge Sirica of 30, 35 years, James McCord wrote a letter to Sirica and said that people have been lying, there's a cover-up going on. And Sirica released the letter in open court uh, on the 23rd of uh, 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 March. And while McCord didn't know anything, because he wasn't intimately involved, the people who did, who'd been running the cover-up, knew. They panicked, Magruder in particular, and that brought it down. So from June of 1972, thinking about the audience, yeah. When the break-in has occurred and eight people know who yeah. have authority, up through the conviction and near sentencing of the actual participants in the, the break-in, the cover-up holds, Gordon Liddy gets money, pays their legal fees, and nobody breaks silence. The president is re-elected, carries 49 states. Does Richard Nixon know at all? Does he ask? Does anyone tell him what's going on with the connection before that sentencing? Well, you've covered a tremendous amount of time. Uh, the cover-up evolves. <clears throat> John Dean is running it. He's admitted publicly that he was chief desk officer of the cover-up. He says he was operating under the direction and control of others. But when did he say that he was the chief desk officer of the cover-up? Uh, there's a tape uh, uh, seminar at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in February of some subsequent year, uh, I, I have the date somewhere, uh, and he's on one of the panels and it's televised. And so John Dean self-identifies as the chief desk officer of the cover-up. Yeah. So uh, what is the desk officer of the cover-up doing? Well, or what is someone doing from June to March? Uh, he's monitoring all the FBI interviews and investigations. He, he's sitting in. Uh, he's, he's talked Pat Gray into... Uh, Who is? The acting director of the uh, FBI. Uh, uh, who has uh, not been confirmed as permanent director, but very much wants to cooperate with the White House. Dean goes over uh, and says, the president has asked me to be involved. I want to see your investigatory records. When did that happen, Jeff? Uh, probably within uh, two weeks of the investigation. So June, the break in the investigation. By July 1st, Dean is... John Dean presents himself to L. Patrick Gray oh, and yeah. says, I'm here as the president's you man. Bet. Was he sent by Ehrlichman? I don't believe so. Uh, was he sent by the president? Well, no, we'd have a record. There was a taping system. Uh, 
In the White House, particularly with younger people, it's not uncommon for people to say the president would like. They shouldn't, but they do. Uh, Dean said it all the time. He, he, he invoked the name of more, more senior people. And he tried it with Dick Kleindienst, and he tried it with Henry Peterson, the head of the criminal division, and they both told him to pound sand. The Department of Justice was going to run its investigation. He tried it with Pat Gray, and he was successful. And By trying, and so he got to sit in on all of the oh, relevant yeah. Yeah. depositions yeah. and interrogations. To report, nominally to report to the president what was going on. The president was very concerned. Uh, and then he would report that to the defense counsel for the Watergate burglars. And they were being reimbursed for their legal expenses. Uh, it came out at trial that a total of $428,000 was paid. Uh, it was stipulated at trial that every dime was paid uh, against legal invoices or for humanitarian aid because the Cubans had no means of support and Sirica wouldn't let them out of jail, so their families were being supported. It, it was thought at the beginning this would all be public. Uh, this was fair play for Cuba in any big scandal, corporate scandal, the employer, uh, even if they fired the guy, they give them money, they pay for their legal expenses. But I don't understand, and I'm too young to know, what was the attitude of the Nixon White House towards this trial? Arm's length or uh, a rogue operation and we are humanitarian uh, causes are leading us to reimburse them or is it secret? What's the attitude? Uh, I have to invent because I wasn't consulted. Uh, the attitude of the White House, Ehrlichman and Haldeman and, I believe, Nixon. John Dean has looked into it and told us nobody here knew about the break-in in advance. We have sent our lawyer to creep physically across the street, 1701 Pennsylvania Avenue. They got troubles. You make sure the problem stays over there. Bad as it is that our committee is tainted, it ain't the White House keep it that way. So John Dean would come back and he would say, I'm doing my best to contain the problem. How often would he meet with the president during this period of time? Uh, uh, he didn't meet with the president until September 15th, <clears throat> 1973, when the... That's not, that, that you mean 72? No, I... Because the... Uh, I'm sorry, it's 1972. Yeah. Uh, the day the Watergate uh, burglary indictments were, were uh, announced. September 15th, he had a brief meeting with the president. It's on tape. And what did you tell him? The Haldeman and the president congratulate him for his work uh, on uh, dealing with the problem, being sure the problem was kept under control. Dean testified that they, they, they admitted knowledge of the cover-up in that meeting. The tape shows they, there was no such interpretation. Okay. But that's the first time in two years on the White House staff that John ever meets with the president. September of 1972. September 15th, 1972. He never met the lawyer, counsel to the president, had never met the president? Never met the president. That's amusing. Uh, now let, let's go forward to that period of time, September to March. How deeply involved, what is the defense of the burglars? Do they have a defense? No, and the effort of the cover-up, they're caught red-handed. There's, there's no investigation of why they were there or who was doing what because they were caught red-handed, and the prosecutor, Earl Silbert, who's the career prosecutor with staff, 
who's one of the unsung heroes of Watergate, says, look, this is very simple. I'm going to convict the people I know I can convict. When they're looking at long prison sentences, they may, they may want to talk. But right now, they don't want to talk. So that's fine. We'll go convict their tail. We got them open and shut case. The, the, uh, uh, during the course of the cover-up, uh, uh, John Dean, who's, who's running it, he says under direction and control, but I don't think so. Afterwards, he's disbarred. And while he worked out at one, a plea to one count with a special prosecutor because he became their witness, <clears throat> the Virginia State Bar Association had no sen similar sense of humor. And in the bar hearing, which is reported in the New York Times on February 6, 1974, it says the Virginia Bar Association accused John Dean of encouraging other people to lie, to commit perjury, of destroying evidence, withholding and destroying evidence, of taking money that was not his own, that's embezzlement, and of uh, being involved in the payoff of witnesses. Does he deny all that to the Virginia it Bar? Was, it was a contested hearing. He went over and said, but I'm a hero, I didn't really do these things. And the three-judge panel disbarred him open and shut. John Dean has been disbarred since that date for the last 45 years. He's not allowed to practice law. All right, now let me bring a character who's central to the part four through eight of this series, Judge Sirica. Yes. Onto the scene. How does he end up with the trial? By draw? Oh, Lord, no. Judge Sirica is chief judge of the district court in the District of uh, uh, Columbia. <clears throat> He's chief judge by order of seniority. The rule in that era was who's ever been there the longest was chief judge. Do you recall who appointed him? Yeah, Eisenhower appointed him uh, about 1957. And everybody says, well, he's a Republican appointee. He's a Republican, a Republican appointee. How could you criticize him? But his career mentor, perhaps his best friend, is Edward Bennett Williams. Oh. He, he's so close that Edward Bennett Williams and his wife are godparents of Sirica's daughter. At the time... Would you explain the significance of Edward Bennett Williams for the Pittsburgh Steelers fans who are listening? Well, yes, I will. He owns the Washington Redskins. He did at the time, uh, he no uh, yeah, longer and, does. And the owner's box had 50 seats, and Judge Sirica was frequently a beneficiary of one of the most impossible tickets to get in town. They used to be good. Uh, everybody wanted to go to the games. They were so close, Sirica wouldn't allow Edward Bennett Williams to, to present, to represent clients in front of him. Their, their, their connection was so tight. Was he a good judge? No, he's a terrible judge. Why do you say he, that? He, he, uh, uh, Not in this case, but generally speaking. He was known to be the most reversed judge in the D.C. Circuit, and he was reversed usually for failure to observe defendants' rights. He wrote a book. The book is hugely revealing. Said he dropped out of law school twice. He didn't understand what the professors were saying. He chose instead to pursue a boxing career. Uh, and went down to Miami and was the more surprised than anybody else uh, when he learned he'd passed the Bar Association. Uh, uh, he said that he, he referred to his time in private practice as his period of starvation and was only saved when Edward Bennett Williams went to leave a prominent firm of Hogan and Hartson to start his own litigation Williams firm. Conley. Williams Connolly and Califano, and 
recommended Sirica be hired in his place. Now, Hogan and Hartson was a pure Georgetown Law School firm, predominantly Catholic. They hired Sirica, and then they discovered that he wasn't that bright and he wasn't that good, and they had a problem. So the District of Columbia is unique because there's no senators. So when you go to name a judge, you don't have to work it out with anybody. And the Hogan and Hartson firm, I believe, went to the Eisenhower people who didn't care. The district is so Democrat, it doesn't make any difference. Said, do us a favor, get this guy out of here. And what motivated John Sirica to get up in the morning? What kind of person are we talking well, about? Well, he was uh, vertically challenged. You know, I'm a little taller. People who are not as tall as I am are self-conscious about that. He became, as he became chief judge, arrogant and uh, condescending and uh, really, really uh, impressed with his own self-importance. So when this case came along, he took it out of rotation and appointed himself to be the presiding judge. Does he commented on why he did that? Uh, no. He's dead, of course, but did he ever no, say he was motivated he, by a Lance Ito-like desire if you for read, fame? Yeah. Oh, I think fame was there. If you read the books, they show at least a dozen secret meetings between Judge Sirica and interested and prosecutors or interested parties in the outcome of the Watergate break-in Are these case. not called ex parte contacts? They are called ex parte contacts. They are highly suspect. Oh, yeah, they're the, frowned on in the uh, law. Hugely. Would you explain why that is to well, our non-lawyer uh, audience? Well, in our adversarial system, the judge is supposed to be fair and impartial, and he's not supposed to hear anything except in the presence of both lawyers. So if there's an automobile accident, he's trying the case, the judge can't go out and look at the intersection on his way home. That He can go out with the two lawyers, but he can't go out with one of them. Now, turns out the chief judge in the district then, and I believe today, is responsible for all the grand jury supervision. And Judge Sirica wanted to know what was going on in the grand juries. So he'd meet with a special prosecution staff and talk about what was going on. Now, that's okay, but you can't then try the case because you've heard stuff and learned stuff that hasn't come through the rights of due process, the ability to put on your own witnesses, the ability to confront confronted by people against you, the ability to cross-examine. So your argument is that Judge Sirica ought never to have been the presiding judge in the break-in trial? Absolutely, because of his involvement, if it had become known that he met with uh, uh, different people, Edward Bennett Williams for one of them, Sam Dash, the chief counsel of the Irvin Committee, who was a friend, they were both adjunct professors at Georgetown, Dash came down and called on Sirica and said, you know, you know, John, we're looking for witnesses up there on the Irvin Committee, and uh, if you were to sentence these people to pretty severe terms but hold out the hope of reduction. If they cooperated with a legislative branch, we'd be beholden to You've them. just introduced another character, Sam Irvin, a segregationist, an old Southern bigot who is remembered fondly for his work on the Watergate Committee, but I do not want it to go unremarked that he was a bigoted man. Sam Irvin 
chairs the famed Watergate committee, and my personal point of reference is, I had the basketball coach for summer school in 1973, and we watched four hours of the hearing every day for our summer school course in American government. So I remember the hearings quite well. Why was there an urban committee? Why was he the chair of it? When did it get impaneled? And what's it? You just mentioned they had interplay yep. with the prosecutor. Why would that be appropriate? Take a step back first. Sirica presides over the break-in case, <clears throat> which is not particularly complicated because they're caught red-handed. But he wants to turn the case into an investigation of the truth of who was who knew. And he's very frustrated about this. Uh, and it didn't matter to convict the people that were there in front. Uh, and he was very frustrated when he couldn't do that. So he announced at the end of the trial that he hoped the Senate would undertake an investigation. And he gave the prosecutors a list between six and eight people and demanded those people be brought in front of the grand jury. In March of 1973, before he sentences. They were, they were convicted on January 30th, I'm 1973. Sorry. Sentencing is postponed two months. And that's when so, he calls for the committee to be formed. On January 30th, and the Senate responds. Uh, they were looking into it anyway, but on February 7th, uh, by a vote of 77 to 0, they appoint the Senate Select Committee to review the 1972 presidential election. Let's so pause funny, for a moment. When, it's a funny number. What, yeah, a, why was it 77 to nothing, and B, who moved for this under what reason, having just won a landslide? Who had the temerity to do this? Well, the Democrats, because they felt the rumors were that the real people responsible for the Watergate break-in hadn't been indicted. Uh, on September 15th, when the career prosecutors indicted, <clears throat> I think the, uh, uh, it's the four Cubans, McCord, Lydian Hunt. Uh, uh, Senator Kennedy, Edward Kennedy, who's on Senate Judiciary and chairs the Senate Subcommittee on Administrative Practices, he uh, devotes five of his six staff members to investigating Watergate. And they start gathering evidence and information. And they're going against a guy named uh, Donald Segretti, another new name. Uh, uh, Donald Segretti was a trickster and a troublemaker during the re-election campaign uh, in the mode of a, a very famous individual on the Democratic side named Dick Tuck. Tuck. Dick now, Tuck. was Segretti employed by the committee to re-elect? Yes, he was. All right. Yes, so, he but was. But he's not associated with G. Gordon Liddy? Not in the least. Uh, uh, he's got nothing to do with campaign intelligence. What Segretti would do, and he's a lawyer. Segretti would, I know Don Segretti. Okay, he's, he's a fine he's, guy. He's a fine man yeah. about town, nice guy. He, he, he would go around uh, in advance of a campaign stop by George McGovern, and he would go to the local college, and he would find the Republican club, and he would say, look, McGovern's coming, or his cabinet secretary's coming to speak uh, uh, next week. Let's go organize a protest. Let's go. We'll get some signs. We'll go down, and we'll cause a little bit of trouble. Uh, uh, and uh, sometimes he would help out. Uh, by ordering uh, a dozen pizzas on behalf of the McGovern campaign, and they show up, and nobody knows who's supposed to pay this guy. Uh, uh, it, it was it, it, in the group of people who plan campaign stops, they're called advance men. And they're, they're kind of like the, the salesman in 76, in the music man, 
where he comes into town to sell the band equipment. You know? you're, you're, you lost our demographic there. Okay. Uh, but it's an uh, old movie, and they are, they are salesmen par excellence. He's trying to drum up business. Yep. The advanced team is trying to drum up a crowd. You talk to the superintendent of schools or the mayor, and we want the, we want the elementary schools let out of, of, of school to, to build up the parade. Because there is no social media. You need the newspaper, you need the local Absolutely. TV station. Yeah. So the, the advanced people, it's a highly refined expertise, they compete against the others from the other side. And they throw rocks in their way, and it's called black advance. And the Republicans had been on the receiving end of black advance forever. Now they're in power, and they're going to reverse and and treat the other guys. So that's Segretti's team. How does, he, Segretti. get, how does he attract and, the and, attention of the Senate? Well, well, uh, what, what Senator Kennedy does is he goes to the uh, uh, telephone people and he goes to the credit card people and on his own authority, he subpoenas their records on Segretti and then they can match Segretti going out across the nation. And then it becomes a little too political because Senator Kennedy is <clears throat> is a Kennedy and doesn't like Nixon. So uh, uh, Mansfield, uh, Senator Mansfield. Who is the like, leader of the Democratic <clears throat> majority in the Senate. Absolutely. Says, this is becoming too political. We'll continue the investigation of the Nixon campaign, but we got to appoint other people. So they keep the same staff, but they pass 77 to nothing a vote to establish the Senate Select Committee on the campaign and they appoint Sam Irvin, Democrat of North Carolina. Now, the 77 vote. They had two party-line votes before that, that A, it would be a four-to-three group. So the Democrats would control the entire investigation, four Democrats, three Republicans, and they would only investigate the presidential campaign of 1972. So uh, 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 Lyndon Johnson's people... Is sure, in the clear... They don't want to investigate 68 or 64. The Kennedy people don't want to investigate 1960. They're just going to investigate Dick Nixon and poor old George McGovern. So the, the Republican senators boycotted the vote. That's why it's 77 to zero. There were only 30, there were only 27. No. Well, they two-thirds are Democrats. So roughly seven Republicans Copped out. Wow. You know, but I mean, are, the numbers are extraordinary given that Mitch McConnell, uh, as we yeah. talk, holds a 53 to 47 yep. majority. People forget that Richard Nixon was the first president in modern times to be elected without either House of Congress. And, and he was in a substantial minority in both houses. I mean, it wasn't just he didn't control one, it was left over from the Goldwater debacle. A so filibuster was, proof. Absolutely. Well, virtually. virtually. And so they name how many people to the Senate Select Committee? Four Democrats, three Republicans. Uh, let's concentrate on the Republicans for a second. Lowell Weicker campaigns to get on for the ex uh, uh, Senator of Connecticut for the express purpose of sinking Dick Nixon. And the chairman of the Republican caucus is Hugh Scott, I believe? Yes. And he is making uh, these appointments? Uh, yes, he is. And he appoints Howard Baker to be the lead Republican guy. Howard wants to run for president. Howard makes the political decision. Every, every senator wants to run for president. Wants to run for yeah. president. And many they, do. And if they say they don't, 
they're not telling well, you the whole truth. They're over 75 yeah. or something. But uh, Howard Baker makes the political decision <clears throat> that he'll come off better if he appears to be objective and just wanting to pursue the truth. And then you have a third Republican who's... Uh, Name escapes me at the moment. We are working without notes for the benefit of the audience. I believe he's a senator from Florida. Name begins with a G. Doesn't matter. On the majority side is Sam Irvin, uh, known as the Senate's greatest constitutional scholar. Uh, Except but, for that 14th but, Amendment part having to do with the equal rights well, with he's, the, he's losing, the African-American community. He's losing it. He's a buffoon. They say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, uh, he, he, they say, well, he graduated from Harvard Law School in 1922 or 1923. But it's not true. He was already a practicing lawyer. I've looked into this. He went up for a year uh, and, and took some classes. But he's not a graduate. And he was way over the hill. But the media makes him into this really wise, you know, uh, 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 folksy, uh, uh, man, and he's just as political as he can be, and he hires a very, very political staff. They carried Kennedy's people over. The prime investigator is this guy named Carmine Bellino, uh, who was Joe Kennedy's personal assistant. And then when Jack Kennedy was president, Carmine had an office in the White House and an office at the Department of uh, Justice. With Bobby. With Bobby. And he's just as political as a guy can so be. So tell me, when they put this together, who is their lead counsel on the Senate Select Committee? Because that's a, peer, that's a position of extremely uh, great authority. They, they hire Sam Dash, who's a uh, professor at Georgetown. Why <clears throat> did they hire Sam Dash? I don't know. Uh, but... He runs the investigation. It's not like today where the members are trying to run it. Sam Dash said, look, here's what we did. He said this in a magazine article afterwards. We wanted to tell a story. The story we wanted to tell would get fouled up if you had questions that weren't coordinated. So I supplied the questions so we would have a common line of questioning. To my memory, he questioned people first and then went out to the committee. So you got, you got serious questioning. But what they did, and everybody remembers the Irvin Committee. I watched, as I said, four hours a day. Mesmerizing. Yeah. They conducted a legislative trial of the Nixon administration. In a normal trial, the government presents its case, sworn testimony, you have the right of cross-examination. When they're through, you can go to the judge and say they haven't even made a case. Only after they've made their case under oath, subject to cross-examination, do you have to make your case. In a legislative trial, it's exactly the opposite. Well, we've just seen that with the Trump impeachment. You're called in. The questioner isn't under oath. They've leaked stuff about you. The Urban Committee leaked like a sieve. They interview you several days before. They make you put your statement in in advance, so they're all prepared to take you apart. They give speeches before you can talk. 
and nobody has to build a case against you. That's all rumor and innuendo. Nobody's under oath giving testimony about you. You're called to defend yourself against rumors. But now, Jeff Shepard, when this committee is established, provoked by the Segretti incidents, are you alarmed as a White House staffer? The White House staff was alarmed. I'm not involved. Uh, they had a meeting uh, uh, out in, uh, near the Western White House in San Clemente where they talk about how are we going to handle the Irvin Committee. When you say they, who are we talking about? The president? Ehrlichman, Haldeman, not the president. Ehrlichman, Haldeman, other top staff people. It's all um, on the record. Uh, <clears throat> Baker inexplicably appoints as his counsel, minority counsel, Fred Thompson. Fred is a name known to us today because he went on to become a U.S. Senator from And Tennessee. a successful actor. And a successful actor. And a one-time presidential candidate. Uh, and a neat guy. Yeah. But when he was named, he was U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee, never been to Washington, and except he had run Howard Baker's re-election campaign. So you've got a guy with no connections whatsoever, doesn't know where the bathroom is, coming in to defend the Nixon So he's overmatched. So what I want to get to, though, is this is established by Mansfield, chaired by Irvin. Hugh Scott appoints Howard Baker, and they get going, but there isn't a sentencing yet, but there's a conviction. And Sirica says what to the Senate? He says you should establish the committee. This is back before. He says establish the committee on June 30th. They do on February 6th. Nobody much cares. January 30th. He January 30th. Yeah. January 30th. They establish it by vote on February 6th. Nobody much cares until John Dean becomes the, test, the uh, witness. That's when the networks start covering. And, and tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about the sentencing, because it is somewhat sketchy to hold sentencing over convicted people um, for the purposes of um, eliciting from them damning controversy. I know it's routine, but it's somewhat sketchy. Well, uh, let's go back to the object of the cover-up. The object of the cover-up uh, 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 was to prevent this trial by getting them all to plead guilty. It's just a B&E, a breaking and entering. Yeah, what the heck? Judge may be nuts, but we, we, let's wipe this out. So they convinced Howard Hunt to plead guilty. Howard Hunt uh, is a broken man. Uh, it, career is over, wife has died in an airplane accident, and he has a special daughter, and he knows he's, he's going to be convicted. So he works out a plea Special deal. needs daughter? Special needs daughter. Okay. Works out a deal with the prosecutors. Prosecutors are very straight. I mean, they're not political. These are the career prosecutors. Pleads guilty to, he's indicted on six counts, going to plead guilty to three. Come in as Sirica, first day of trial. Sirica says, nope. No plea deals in my court. If you're going to plead guilty, you got to plead to all six. All six. And then, let me tell you, buddy, I am going to sentence you consecutively. All six. So if you aren't here for my trial with me and my moment in the sun, you'll never see the sun, the light of day again. Howard thinks it over for a day and pleads guilty to six counts. Okay? Uh, uh, Earl Silbert, the lead prosecutor, is telling Howard, let me tell you something, Howard. 
when you're looking at all that jail time, we're going to bring you back in front of the grand jury and ask you if you got a different story. So I've been telling you this all along. You're not getting out just because you pled guilty. The Cubans come up next, plead guilty, get you out of here. That's the whole purpose. We're talking to your lawyers. We're paying your lawyers. We want you to plead guilty, and they do. Same deal, got to plead guilty to everything. Swallow hard, they plead guilty. Leaves two people, Gordon Liddy, uh, uh, McCord. Uh, McCord, Jim McCord. Liddy's not talking. He's the Iron Man of Watergate. He's not talking to anybody. So the government has to put on its case, but Liddy never takes a stand. McCord does the same thing. But, but McCord does something that's really interesting, uh, uh, bizarre. Uh, there was an old wives' tale. I'm making this up, but it's true. Uh, uh, that the way you avoided being convicted if you uh, uh, worked for the CIA was you demanded certain secrets from the agency. They wouldn't reveal the secrets, so the government's prosecution would fail, okay, because they wouldn't produce the evidence that the government, uh, that the judge said the government needed to, to uh, have a fair defense. So McCord figures out what he's going to do is he knows there's a wiretap on the Chilean embassy that we put in a long time ago. We got that place wired, and they don't know it, and the CIA didn't want them to know it. So James McCord calls the Chilean embassy. This is James McCord. Uh, I'd like to speak to uh, your press officer, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. And then he puts in a subpoena for all government records of where he might have been overheard. And waits for his case to be dismissed. And it doesn't happen. And, and he says, well, this is nuts. You know, I know. So he calls again. And it, because nobody's coordinating with the, with the CIA on his documentary demands. And he's so frustrated. His lawyer's trying to get him to plead guilty because his lawyer wants this thing to go away. Fires his lawyer, hires another lawyer. And then he says, the prosecutors have cheated because they didn't present my case fairly. He's convicted anyway. He's looking at a long prison sentence. So they're all convicted. They're all looking at forever. Two after trial, everybody else in advance of trial, Sirica postponed sentencing for two months. Pressure builds. Really builds. Hunt comes in and says, a week before sentencing, sentencing is... Uh, Friday, March 23rd, he says, you guys are slow pay. I owe a lot of legal fees. I got expenses. Who does he say this to? He says it to a man named O'Brien. I think it's Phil O'Brien, who is a lawyer for Crete. And what happens is it's a setup. Hunt's lawyer is a guy named Bill Bittman. He'll come up again, too, who works for Hogan and Hartson. He's a former Democrat, he's a former prosecutor for Democrat administrations. He represents Howard Hunt. They call Phil O'Brien over for a meeting with Bittman at Hogan and Hartson. And when O'Brien walks in, Bittman says, uh, you go down the hall, uh, uh, Hunt's down there, he wants to talk to you. Bittman won't go to the meeting, he's his lawyer. O'Brien goes down, Hunt says, look, you owe me legal bills, and I'm going to jail on Friday, and I want 
money for my family's expenses. In fact, uh, 75,000 of legal expenses and 50,000 of walk-around money, not his phrase. And O'Brien, and he says, now you tell John Dean about this demand. Okay? Dean. So Phil calls John Dean on Monday and goes in and says, you know, Howard's looking for money. Dean calls Ehrlichman. Phone call. Ehrlichman says, I'd call Mitchell. Sounds like blackmail to me. I'd call Mitchell. Now, we have to drop back because we didn't cover this. In the course of the cover-up, after the arrests, there's a division of view because everybody involved in the break-in came from the White House, not from the Department of Justice. They're not Mitchell's people. So Dean, in running the cover-up, kind of says to Mitchell, these are all White House guys. This was a Haldeman operation. Whether he says it specifically or impliedly, don't know. And he says to the White House people, nobody here knew about that break-in in advance. You guys are clean. The people over at Creep are dirty. So you watch out and you be real careful of Mitchell. Okay? So each side blames the other. Same team. But the Mitchell people blame the White House and the White House people blame Mitchell. And that's we're going to leave it for hour number five when we okay. come back to okay. Known Unknowns, Watergate with Jeff Shepard.